0: financial needs of a business go beyond tax and attest services. That's why CTBK goes beyond accounting services and offers outsourced solutions through their affiliation with CFO Solutions Plus. These additional services allow clients to focus on their operational and long-term strategic goals. Trust CTBK's outsourced solutions to provide cost-effective, value-added financial services tailored to your company's needs. Call CTBK at 716 716- 630 2400 Again, 716-630-2400. Or go to ctbk.com to learn more about CTBK's outsourced solutions. Welcome to another edition of Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK CPAs and business consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic here with my co-host Jonah Bronstein of Bronstein Enterprises. And uh, joined now by friend of the podcast, Florina Altshiller. She has frequent flyer miles here on Tim Graham and Friends. Um, Bringing her back to talk about what's going on with Von Miller and his arrest on Thursday for um, felony assault of his uh, pregnant girlfriend uh, just to give uh, folks a reminder of uh, Florina's uh, Bonafides, uh, she uh, is the former uh, prosecutor for the state of Alaska in the Special Assaults Unit, in which she prosecuted sex crimes, crimes against children, homicides. A very difficult job and a very uh, important job that she held uh, in the state for the state of Alaska. She is now a defense attorney with the law firm of Russo and Gould. Uh, florina thanks for joining us here um it's uh, i i think that a lot of people watching this podcast now here as we're recording uh early evening on friday know a lot of the details so let me just jump right into the thing i'm most curious no no maybe not maybe we need to set it up a little bit here okay um i'll i'll let you speak here you're the expert um But I also just want to set it up so that way everybody knows exactly what we're talking about. Uh, On Tuesday, uh, Von Miller was accused of uh, assaulting his uh, girlfriend of seven years, who also is six weeks pregnant. A Key fact, or at least a key finding by the police, is that Von Miller also knew she was pregnant at the time. We'll get into that. Uh, An affidavit for uh, his arrest warrant said that... um, There was this is a Wednesday morning. I'm sorry. Wednesday morning, not Tuesday morning, uh, that a verbal argument uh, over travel plans escalated to the point where. And again, this is the affidavit uh, claiming this. uh, Von Miller allegedly pushed her, shoved her, stepped on her feet, pulled her hair, knocked her over, put his hands around her neck. And according to the police, there were observable bruises on her neck, on her abdomen, on one of her arms. There were abrasions to her. Um, there was a 911 call audio released uh, to at least the Dallas Morning News um, in which uh, she claimed some of these things when requesting police to come. Uh, and now she is recanting, uh, according to the Dallas Morning News, and saying this never happened. So I guess let's take the 30,000-foot view um Florina, when you when you just look at this case in very broad strokes, what comes to mind here? And then I guess we'll get into some very specific elements of it.
1: Sure. So, Tim, Jonah, thanks for having me back again. Um, uh, lots of things come to mind. On the one hand, this is a... Stereotypically typical domestic violence fact pattern where you have someone in an intimate relationship, someone either with a child in common or here in this case, someone with a soon to be child in common. She's six weeks pregnant. He knows about it. And this is causing some strife among them as well. She makes a report, she's in a moment of weakness, she's scared, Uh, this is a chaotic situation. She's concerned about her safety, I'm sure. She calls 911, as most people do. She's had some time to think about this and there's money at risk here, there's an emotional situation, there's a relationship, there's an NFL player's career that's at risk here. And what does she do? She takes back what happened. And she says it never happened. Classic recanting situation. This is not uncommon in domestic violence situations. This is a, a typical playbook, unfortunately, of a domestic violence situation because this is not a stranger on stranger assault. These are two people that are intimate partners. And in a moment of weakness, they call the police for help. And then they have that oh shit moment. They have that moment of what did I just do involving law enforcement, involving prosecutors and ringing that bell and starting the criminal case. I want no part of that. What does this mean for the future? For me, for him, for us. And they take it back. And unfortunately this happens quite commonly.
0: Lorena, what is the obligation now of whether it be law enforcement or the district attorney's office? This happened in Texas, Um, so there are different rules in play. I saw your segment on Channel 7 in which you explained that in the state of New York, this wouldn't be as serious of a charge as it is in Texas. Maybe we'll get into that later, too. But we now have conflicting, not just innuendo, but evidence. Uh, The 911 call, she states one thing very clearly. Uh, The police report to uh, her and see these bruises. They're presumably, and I guess I'm saying presumably, but common sense would indicate that the police took photographs of these bruises and abrasions. Um, There perhaps is police body cam footage of their discussions. Uh, There might be ring cam footage. We're talking about a wealthy individual. Perhaps there's surveillance footage from within the home, Uh, neighborhood, uh, neighbors might have uh, closed caption or um, (laughs) closed caption, closed circuit television uh, surveillance footage, whatever of the neighborhood of when he stormed away. So she's now recanting what I, what I, what can law enforcement do or what should they do? even without her assistance here at this stage.
1: Well, my understanding is not only is everything, Tim, that you just said is true. Additionally, I believe she provided cell phone recordings from her cell phone dur- during a portion of this altercation with him so that's further evidence that he is the perpetrator and what she's saying happened did in fact happen
0: yeah i guess for clarification that's another part of this assault is that he took from her allegedly uh some of her devices whether it be phone laptop uh damaged them if not destroyed them as part of this uh altercation that they had in which she was according to the police reports um trying to videotape him in the process and apparently got some footage and, and, and also uh, exchange or showed some texts previous to this that indicate Von Miller knew she was pregnant. So she was, it sounds as though she was quite cooperative uh, initially.
1: Right. And again, typical domestic violence scenario here, initially cooperative, initially there's evidence and strong evidence to support that what she reported did in fact happened Uh, time passes and she says never mind just kidding this never happened also part of the typical unfortunate scenario. So what happens next? What happens next is going to depend on what this specific prosecutor's office policy is. Different DAs approach this situation differently. I can tell you from my experience in a domestic violence unit in Kings County, that's Brooklyn, New York, and from my experience in Alaska when I was in the DA's office, what we used to do is in a situation like this because it's a common situation. So long as we have other evidence that corroborates that 911 call, we move forward and we prosecute the case. We subpoena the witness, and that's what she is at this point, is a witness. This is not a civil case, her against him. This is a criminal case. Here it would be people of the state of Texas against Von Miller. And the people of the state of Texas would be moving forward with the case. She becomes a complaining witness. She would be subpoenaed. She would be called to court to testify. And then she has a very difficult choice to make. She can lie in court and potentially commit perjury and say this never happened. Um, I lied on the 911 call. He didn't do this. Nothing happened. I wasn't touched. And of course, the evidence suggests otherwise. Or she could then, uh, since she's subpoenaed and since she's under oath in court, tell the truth as to what really happened. If she lies, one She's got this perjury implication, which is concerning. But two, and more importantly, they have her earlier statements. They have the 911 call. They have potentially body camera of what she told the police officers at the scene. And they will then impeach her with her prior statement where she's saying, this is what he did and he did this to me. That is one way of going about this. So you don't need the victim to cooperate so long as you have all this other evidence and you subpoena them. The other way of going about this, which some DA's offices choose to do is they say, look, there's not a complainant who's interested in cooperating. We don't want to make her life more difficult. We don't want to expose her to potential perjury charges. She's a victim. We're not trying to harass her. Uh, we're just not going to pursue this case. We're going to drop the charges because there's no cooperating complainant. The danger there is sometimes in domestic violence situations, you've got a slap, a punch, a kick, maybe hands on somebody's neck on the first incident. And then whether it's three days later or three months later or three years later, you have a dead victim you've got a homicide on your hands. And the failure to prosecute initially sometimes unfortunately paves the way for that escalation and for that homicide. Um, We've seen this with OJ Simpson. He was found not guilty, but I think we all know what happened there. Um, We see it time and time again in these domestic violence situations where it's a low level assault Um, You know, we're not talking about somebody getting stabbed 15 times, but it's a punch, a kick, a slap, a shove, sometimes strangulation, but not to the point of unconsciousness. And then sometime later, it's a homicide. And that's really concerning. So there's really not a good way forward in this case. You can subpoena her and force her to testify, which isn't great or you can drop the case and expose potentially an escalation of the situation, which also is not great.
2: Jonah. Uh, Florena, what do you think about the fact that or it's, there was a similar case back in 2021? I don't know all the details of that case and what's similar, what's different, but you know, some of it is, uh, you know, looks like maybe a pattern of behavior. How does that, affect the prosecutor's decision and also, you know, your analysis and how how we should perceive this situation?
1: Yeah, I I mean, to say that there was a similar case, um, you know, there's many similar cases, sadly. Uh, Domestic violence cases, unfortunately, follow this typical fact pattern where there's an immediate report, the victim then recants. And then there's a tough choice for the prosecutor to make. So this is a very sadly, and I'm not saying this to make light of the situation. It is unfortunate, but this is a typical fact pattern. And there's a similar case with perpetrators, right? The the perpetrator acts similarly as well. In a domestic violence situation, there's what's known as the cycle of violence and it ebbs and flows and it goes up and down. So you have this situation where it's a heated situation, there's some sort of violence, there's some sort of argument, uh, maybe a push, a shove, a slap. And then you go into this honeymoon period, they apologize, things are great. The victim feels comfortable, maybe they buy him gifts, they pay attention to them, things are great. And there's not a defined time period where things are great. It could be a few days, it could be a year. The victim becomes comfortable again, things are good, and then another incident happens. The next incident happens, there's been enough time in between, and then the victim in the domestic violence situation typically says, this does not happen often. This doesn't this hasn't happened in the past. Okay, maybe it happened once before but that was a long time ago and that was a fluke situation. And so this pattern of domestic violence, this cycle is a cycle that perpetrators consciously or not perpetuate to keep that victim in the relationship, to keep them comfortable, to keep them staying in the relationship, and to keep them from cooperating with law enforcement, because there's a lot on the line, and they don't want to lose that. Um, And you see perpetrators who have had similar incidents in the past as well. Because it's not a one-off situation in a heated argument with a stranger who stole something from you and you punched him out of anger to get it back. We're talking about a situation of intimate partners that interact with each other in a certain way. And so the perpetrator tends to act that way in a repeat pattern. And the victims tend to act that way in a repeat pattern. None of this is surprising. None of it is good. All of it complicates the case for the prosecutor and for law enforcement.
0: So, uh, Florina, that um, that previous incident that was investigated, no charges came, uh, happened in uh, 2021 in Colorado. Would the district attorney's office in Texas reach out and get those notes or that investigation, or because charges weren't brought, uh, is that considered a totally separate thing and not germane to what transpired this week?
1: Great question. Um, Is that something they can get? They can try, absolutely. Is that something they're going to use later on? probably not. I say probably because we don't know all of the facts. Uh, But the Colorado case is a great example of what I said at the beginning of this podcast. And what I said is it depends on the district attorney's office. Different DA's offices handle these cases differently. So the DA's office in Colorado, and again, we don't know exactly how much evidence they had, Obviously they did not have a cooperating complainant. They had somebody who recanted and did not want to go forward. And that district attorney's office made the determination to drop the charges and not go forward. What happens a year and a half, two years later? A very similar situation. And that's exactly the problem and exactly the risk in not prosecuting these types of cases is the perpetrator does not change and the violence doesn't deescalate, the exact opposite happens, the violence escalates. And as the violence escalates, you're exposing their intimate partner to very serious danger. And you know, don't misunderstand, I am not saying that every domestic violence victim who's assaulted is then going to be killed, obviously not. That is a very strong correlation to be making. But what I'm saying is there are cases, whatever small percentage of cases, but they're there, where the victim has violence against them escalate and they end up dead at the hands of that same perpetrator. And that's a very serious concern. And certainly the violence does not stop and the perpetrator continues to act that way, whether toward that same intimate partner or later on in another intimate relationship.
0: There was also a lawsuit, and this was a civil case, uh, in May of 2022, uh, regarding revenge porn. Uh, so, not the same, but considered to be, well, I don't really want to use a legal term to put it in any kind of basket that all that all three of these cases belong in. Uh, does that... Um, motivate or even count uh, regarding this case and what the district's, district attorney might consider?
1: Uh, look, this, this is clearly not a great partner to be with, but people make their choices through a variety of reasons, um, and certainly an NFL player is someone that I could see how people would be interested in and attracted to. Uh, his history with intimate partners is clearly not a good one. Revenge pornography is something that people can sue civilly for. Revenge pornography is also something against which there are criminal laws in some but not all states. California was the first to start criminalizing revenge pornography. New York now has revenge pornography laws that make it criminal. I don't have enough details about that civil case as to where and when exactly it happened as to whether or not there could have been criminal charges. Obviously there weren't, uh, but it that's not something to take lightly either. It's not just a civil matter. It very well can rise to the level of criminality. And typically what we mean by revenge pornography is when somebody has naked photos of the other person's intimate body parts, and then without consent disseminates or shares them with other people outside of that relationship. So in some relationships, people will text each other, email, whatever, share naked photos. They're meant for their partner. And they then have a rift, they have an argument, whatever happens, and the partner posts them on the internet, shares them with their co-workers, sends them around. That is criminal in most states now.
0: Typically, and that's a word that gets used so much when you're talking about legal analysis, right? I think if somebody went back and looked up the number of words we've, used, we've uh, said typically on this podcast that there's... Uh, it's been a few. Uh, typically speaking, and I know that you don't know this district attorney's office, how quickly do we generally learn what the district attorney's office plans to do regarding a case similar to this?
1: So, so the legal answer is always, it depends, and it's going to depend on the facts, And it's going to depend on this specific prosecutor and district attorney's office and what their internal policy for their domestic violence unit is. What I would typically, however, expect uh, is for them to meet with this victim, to bring her in, to talk to her, probably to assign a victim advocate to her so that she has social services available, so that she has emotional support and make her aware of some choices that she can make. Does she want to go forward with the prosecution? And what will that look like? Or is she going to make the choice to not cooperate? And if she does, what will that look like? Some DA's offices allow the victim to make the choice to not go forward and they just drop the charges. Other DA's offices say, look, you might be the victim, but you're a complaining witness here. It's not you against him. It's us against him. You are simply a witness. You can cooperate or not cooperate. We are going forward. You will be testifying as a witness. Your job is to tell the truth, and you could choose to tell the truth or not. That's your choice.
0: Jonah, anything else for for Florina? Uh, No,
2: (laughs) that was really my only question I asked before.
0: Hmm. What a curious mind you have, Jonah.
2: You know, (laughs) this has been a long podcast today, Tim.
1: Well, Tim, I will say this. You know, what I find interesting is if we compare this to that Matt case that we talked about in earlier podcasts, right? There we had a case where he was accused of rape. There were no criminal charges filed. There was just a civil lawsuit, and in fact, the DA's office decided not to pursue any case against him, right? He His career is essentially over. He was bounced from the bills, and that's the end of that. Here, we have a different caliber player. And you guys could speak to his uh, football career in history, but we're not talking about some newbie. We're talking about somebody who's, I believe, won two Super Bowls, right? Um, So his value on the team is different. And it will be interesting for me to see what the team does, given the same contract provisions and requirements and duties and ethical obligations, where we have somebody with a criminal charge against him, do they drop him because that is a term in the contract that allows them to drop him, or do they say... Yeah, but he's just too valuable, and we'll ride this wave out and see where it goes. And I'm really interested and curious to see how that portion plays out.
0: Yeah, there. it should be noted that uh, Ariza being on a rookie contract, very little was guaranteed. Uh, Von Miller literally has guaranteed money in his contract that the bills may have to pay him, depending on how this shakes out and if they were to move on. Um, would have to pay him whether he plays for them or not. And that could uh, play into the business decision uh, involved versus a PR decision or a moral decision.
2: And salary cap implications, if they release him, and, you know, it's under the current terms of the contract, they're going to owe more on the salary cap than it would to keep them. So it's a financially difficult decision to make, you know especially if you don't yet know how the case has been adjudicated.
1: Right, and I think it's going to put finances ahead of the ethical implications where they stood on their morals with a because it didn't have those financial implications and they were well in their right to kick him off without financial implications versus here where now it's not a question of is he going to be distracted by litigation is this something that we as a team want to make a statement about and stand against now we're talking about a lot of money and a player with a lot of value and so i'm curious to see how that portion plays out
2: it's also a player who oh go ahead well in a lot of ways in some ways, is a team spokesman, and you know, a player that's in you know local advertisements, national advertisements. He's a very high profile, has his own podcast, media figure, almost as much as a football player, and maybe more than a football player in, in the number of steps he's played this season.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's it's going to be. There are so many different elements uh, to play out here. Um, of course, or at least in my opinion, the most important is the safety of this woman and what happens uh, with the case in Texas. Not so much the football player and whether or not he's worth the money. <clears throat> excuse me, worth the money anymore. To me, that sh- that's secondary. Should be secondary, at least in my book. Uh, I do know that there are a lot of Bills fans out there that don't care, want it the other way around. You know, they just want. Some of them want him gone for a financial decision. Some want him to stick around because they think he's still good. And this uh, this this distraction down in Texas uh, is something that they could do without. Now, there's another element too, just to to raise it, um, of the man in the locker room. And I know that he's made his impression on his teammates. He's a leader. He has his own gravitational pull. Um, and opinions don't change overnight. But I'm guessing that there are some uh, teammates in that locker room uh, who, not, who don't feel as comfortable around Von Miller as they did last week, and wouldn't be upset if he were gone. I don't think it's unanimous that they that they'd want him back if they were all to uh, speak their truths. Uh, Florina Allchiller, uh, thank you for doing this. As always, it is tremendous insight insight that we would just have to guess about. You know the the law, you know how it works, and you're able to put it in such a way that we all feel smarter uh, for having listened to you. Thanks for joining the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, guys.
0: CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach that takes on each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills to provide creative solutions for their clients. Based right here in Western New York, CTBK is a champion for your business in our community. Additionally, CTBK goes beyond tax and attest services by offering a wide array of consulting and outsourced solutions tailored to meet the unique needs of your business, allowing you to focus on your operational and long-term strategic goals. Whether you're a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, the team at CTBK is determined to help you succeed. Visit ctbk.com or call 716 630,2400. 716 to learn how CTBK's one-team approach can work for you.